Hi, everyone. Welcome to Foresight's uh, Neurotech Group, chaired by Randall Kronov, who I think is also in the audience uh, today. Really excited. Um, I think we've hit the ground running really well this year already uh, with a few really wonderful presentations so far. Uh, really excited to get uh, into today's presentation as well. Thanks, everyone, for joining who's joining here in the background. And, and I also just want to make you guys aware that if you do want to join uh, and if you're watching this virtually, we have the Neurotech group and the seminar group where you can actually apply to join these seminars. Um, and then we have uh, a few upcoming in-person events as well coming up that could be interesting for you, including the whole brain emulation workshop, which will be in May 2022 to 2023 in Oxford, where we'll be discussing in particular brain emulations with their relevance for AI safety. Um, given that AI timelines are coming down, it seems like a prudent time to think about whether or not whole renovations could be sped up and um, their, their potential safety implications uh, for AI. All right, but without further ado, I'm very excited uh, to have Chris here today um, to be discussing a little bit more about the kind of ins and outs about how to build a brain. And given that that's a rather large topic, I'm not going to take any further time away from him. I'm going to share a little bit more about you, Chris, in the chat, so linking to your bio and so forth. But if you do want to do a quick intro, that would also be really wonderful. Thank you so, so much for joining. Thanks, everyone, also for being here. And thanks, everyone, for watching uh, at home afterwards. All right, uh, the stage is yours. Great. Thanks, Allison. So, uh, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion afterwards. I'm going to try to keep things compressed to 30 minutes, and then that should leave us tons of time for talking. Um, as a bit of a introduction, my name is Chris Elias Smith. I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo. I hold the Canada Research Chair in Theoretical Neuroscience. I'm jointly appointed between philosophy and systems design engineering, and also cross-appointed to computer science, and I supervise students across all of those areas. Uh, and as well, I'm the founding director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience here at the University of Waterloo. Uh, in addition to that, I'm also uh, involved in a company called Applied Brain Research, and a lot of what I will talk about today, they have sort of taken and run in the direction of developing sort of advanced AI and doing hardware and all kinds of things that I'm also happy to talk about if people are interested in that. But for today's talk, I really wanted to focus on a large scale brain model. Uh, in fact, I believe it's the world's largest functional brain model and it's called Spawn. Um, it's the second version. The first version was published back in 2012 in uh, Science and also as part of my book, How to Build a Brain. And really what we're trying to do here is build something which is biologically plausible in the sense of it uses spiking neurons. It uses neurotransmitters um, of the same varieties that you find in the brain areas that are modeled. Uh, all the connections that are in the model are in the brain. Uh, and we try to scale it up as much as possible while addressing interesting functional aspects of brains, right? So this ranges from everything from perception to motor control and cognition, decision-making, and, you know, everything kind of in between. And in some ways, what we're doing here is trying to um, demonstrate a framework for building these kinds of models. We don't think this model by any means is the end. It's too tiny. Um, but we think that, you know, it's a demonstration of a set of techniques and methods that we've largely developed in the lab that can, we think, be you know, usefully applied to building models that give us insight into both how biological brains function, which is useful for medical purposes, but also allows us to extract computational principles from the brain and use those for commercial applications. Um, so with that in mind, um, you know, really what we're trying to do in this work is build on something that I call in that, in my book, the how to build a brain book, 
biological cognition. So the idea is that we care about cognition at the highest sort of level of sophisticated functioning of biological systems. Um, but we want to do it in a way where we are understanding the biological mechanisms that give rise to cognition. So as many of you know, there's lots of cognitive models out there, but many of them don't really pay too much heed to using the same mechanisms that we find in biology. But for our purposes, we think that's actually quite interesting and important to take account of. We also feel that uh, from the biological side, there are lots of biological models out there where they build models of the brain, but often as they get bigger and more complicated, they don't get more functional. So they don't do more interesting things. They are uh, instead explaining sort of data of the same variety that is used to construct the model. So they might be trying to replicate voltage changes through populations of neurons um, or, you know, average spiking activity or oscillations that you see in cortical sheets. But those aren't really functions from the animal perspective, right, from the perspective of the whole animal. And we believe that you know, brains are really the controllers of the body. And as we make our models more complicated, we should be getting better controllers, essentially. Uh, so, right, with that in mind, uh, as I mentioned, you know, we're using all spiking neurons. We're using simple spiking neurons uh, because as you grow these models, they take a lot of computational resources. So trying to minimize those for each neuron is great. We have built versions of this model that have very sophisticated single cell models in it as well for small parts of the system. And I can talk about that as well. Um, we also, you know, ultimately the system that we're building, uh, and this might get lost a little bit in the way that I'm going to present things, but the system that we're building really is a great big dynamical system where you have neurons that have voltages that generate spikes. Those spikes go through synapses that affect uh, sort of neurotransmitters being used to communicate information between um, uh, neighboring neurons. Uh, different neurotransmitters have different kinds of temporal effects and so on. And really, that's what we're simulating is this like big, complicated, dynamical system with just a bunch of neurons connected to a bunch of other neurons, really like what we think, you know, is the sort of computational basis of what happens in biological systems. So as I go through the model, because it's so big, I'm going to make it look very structured and talk about particular functions and particular blocks and all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, that's really for us to understand what this uh, model looks like kind of from a higher level. But always think that whenever I show videos or results, this is all being simulated at the level of single spiking neurons all communicating with one another. So Spawn 2.0 as a model uh, is very similar to Spawn. That name comes from the semantic pointer architecture, which is the technique that I describe in this book, unified network. So it's kind of taking all of the, you know, as I described the technique in a bunch of different chunks. I wanted to put it all together and show people that, you know, this is really one unified approach. And so we built one network that kind of uses all of the techniques that are described in the book to build a system that can do lots of different tasks, switch between tasks, learn, do memory and blah, blah, blah. I'll show you uh, lots of examples of those um, uh, and really do them in ways that we think are biologically uh, sort of similar to what is going on in biology. Uh, this whole network is simulated in a uh, package called Nengo. So this is a Python package. It has a nice user interface and all kinds of fun things, which is freely downloadable and usable for research purposes. Uh, and it's, you know, built by us and it was built so it could scale to very large models uh, and also built so you can run the same model on many different pieces of hardware. Because as I mentioned before, when these models get big, they get computationally expensive and we need to be able to run them. Um, and so we want to be able to target the best possible hardware, uh, so including things like neuromorphic hardware. This particular model, the second version, is 6.3 million neurons in size. Uh, it used to be 2.5 million neurons, the previous version. It has about 20 billion connections. Uh, it was about 7.5 billion 
this is, this is a lot, um, but you know, it's not on the size of the largest neural networks that we see these days, 175 billion connections and something like ChatGPT, but it is really big. Uh, and I think it's by far the biggest for a biologically, uh, like a spiking neural network. Uh, it does lots of different tasks. Uh, now it does 12 different tasks. Uh, it's a little bit weird to count tasks because some of these tasks are follow my instructions. So you can like specify different tasks every time you change the instructions. Uh, but in any case, uh, you know, it, it's a bunch of different tasks that try to cover the variety of um, behaviors that we're interested in understanding in biological systems like motor control, perception, decision making, memory, learning, etc. Uh, but the architecture overall for Spawn 2.0 hasn't really changed a lot from the original uh, model. It's just kind of made some parts bigger uh, and made other parts slightly more sophisticated and um, yeah, made other components uh, just yeah more sophisticated is probably the best way to think about it. So there's definitely lots of parts of the brain that aren't covered by this model. Um, you know, still like 20 times smaller than the actual brain. So uh, uh yeah, so we, we know that we are, you know, dealing with a very limited amount of brain matter, but nevertheless, uh, enough to give us some interesting behaviors. Um, so here's an example of Spawn. Uh, its input is all visual. Uh, it's got one fixed eye. So it just kind of stares at a screen that's in front of it on the right. Uh, all of the processing is then done in spiking neurons, as I mentioned before. Uh, and then the output that it generates is actually... Uh, muscle contractions, so those blue lines that you see on its arm, so it has one arm as an output uh, with three degrees of freedom, and it contracts muscles to move that arm. And that, mar that arm is physically modeled, so it has like mass and length and everything. And what the brain is doing is generating muscle contractions, just like our brain generates muscle contractions in order to generate its output. Uh, so here we can uh, watch it doing a simple task. Are you seeing the video? Yes? yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so sorry, as I look over here, cause that's where the video is playing for me. Uh, so let me just restart it. Uh, right. So here it's doing a simple task where we're showing it two images and if the image matches, images match, it writes a one. And if they don't match, it writes a zero. So the first two didn't match. Those two did match. The last two did match. Those were two dogs, right? So it's writing a one. Um, it's also do just like classification of digits. So there we showed it a two and it can write it a two. Uh, same thing over and over. Uh, and as you can see, there's like different tensions in these muscles showing up. That's what the colors are in the muscles. And it's uh, generating output based on its input, right? Doing this kind of simple perception task. Now, one thing that's interesting is that we can begin to look inside the model, right? This is kind of the point of building models. So now you can see in the background is all the spiking activity in one part of the visual cortex. And over top of that, we've uh, laid the image that just based on those spikes you would think is there. This is actually not sufficient for solving this task um, because you actually have to remember long enough to write out the digit that you've seen. And so there's also a working memory area that's being involved in this particular task. And you can see that now in the, in the new bubble that shows up. So the digit goes there and actually stays there for a certain length of time and is used until it's written and then it gets uh, you know, ready for the next input. And there's also a motor system, which is basically determining the trajectory that it wants to move the arm through in response to the classification. And that is then being, you know, the sort of other processing through cerebellum uh, that turns that into muscle contractions and actually uh, makes the arm move in the way that we see. All right. So this kind of gives you this, an example of a you know, fairly simple perceptual task. Uh, the updates here is that, you know, it can now look at like full color images and do the classification across a thousand different categories. And that's what it was using when it was 
kind of saying, are these both monkeys or both dogs or whatever at the beginning? Um, and, uh, you know, that's great. But of course, in some ways, it's just perception. And if we want the system to be a cognitive system, it needs to be doing more sophisticated kinds of tasks. Um, so this is an example of a task, uh, which I'm just going to pause here for a second, uh, based on something called Raven's Progressive Matrices. This is a standard intelligence test. Uh, and what's going on is basically we're showing input to the system and it's trying to figure out what the pattern is uh, in order to complete this matrix of inputs and filling in the question mark at the end, right? So we're going to show it some different patterns of numbers and then it has to figure out what's going in at the end. It's never seen this pattern before. It's basically figuring it out on the fly in the same way that people have to on the intelligence test. Um, so right at the beginning, we're just showing it a couple different inputs. So one, one, two ones, and then three ones. And each of those squares is sort of distinguished by these arrows. And then we're showing it a pattern of fours. And then we're going to show it a pattern of fives. And, and then we'll show it a question mark and say, what would you write? How would you complete this pattern? Um, and so it writes out five fives. Uh, and this is just kind of one example of the sort of pattern that it does. And I should also say that Raven's progressive matrices includes kinds of patterns that the model doesn't do, although we have built a model that does the full Raven's matrices as well. Um, but uh, didn't integrate the whole thing into Splunk. But in any case, I think in some ways, this is kind of like an undeniably cognitive uh, behavior. And so, you know, it's important that it's exactly the same model that's doing both of these tasks. And in order to get it to switch between tasks, all we do is give it different visual input. So if we say, we show it like an A and a one, then it knows it's doing perception, the perception task. If we show it uh, an A and a seven, then it knows that it's doing the progressive matrices tasks and so on. And nothing is changing uh, in the model between any of the tasks. Um, and it and it does all kinds of stuff and in the interest of time. I won't show them all to you, um, but you know it's a pretty good variety of things that we think covers simple to complex, reasonably complicated uh, sorts of reasoning. And the one I'm going to show you at the very end of the presentation is what I would say is kind of its most sophisticated sort of cognitive behavior at this point. So before I get to that, though, I want to give some sense of how the model is working uh, and what are the techniques that it's using. So. Um, as I mentioned, you know, Spawn uh, includes in it semantic pointer architecture, uh, which is described in this book, How to Build a Brain. The methods for, uh, and, and really, to, you should think of the semantic pointer architecture as having four essential elements. And these, these include ways of incorporating semantics into the neural representations, representing syntactic structure, which you need for cognitive uh, behaviors, into those same neural representations, being able to control the flow of information through the system, as well as doing things like motor control, uh, and then integrating all of that with learning and memory. Uh, so both long-term and short-term uh, memories, as well as sort of on-the-fly learning of the type that we see in biological systems. Uh, and of course, all of this is being done with spiking neurons. And in some ways, you know, specifying all of these things uh, throughout the book, I, I do it in, at kind of a higher level of abstraction. Um, and... Uh, you can, and you can think of it as kind of defining dynamical systems in high-dimensional vector spaces. And you need a technique for taking that and then embedding it into neural circuits. And we have this NEF set of methods, Neural Engineering Framework, which is my previous book, uh, which basically lets you take any dynamical system that you can define and build a spiking neural network that will approximate that dynamical system. So kind of coupling those two things, one is a sort of architecture, how do biological systems function? Another is a compiler how can I take any function and compile that into a spiking neural network, 
bring those two methods together. And that lets us build models like Spawn and build models, as I mentioned, that we think are models of biological cognition. So what are these semantic pointer things that I've mentioned a couple of times? Um, this is a general way of understanding representation that uh, is sort of biologically responsible and very efficient and maps onto all kinds of features of biological representations that we see throughout visual systems, motor systems, and cognitive systems. Uh, one way to think about this is that uh, we're defining essentially vectors, which we're calling these semantic pointers, but they're sort of special vectors because they uh, are highly compressed representations of what you would think of as raw sensory data. Um, so I've got a picture of the visual system on the right-hand side there. And I think this is kind of the most intuitive way to think about semantic pointers, where you have like an image coming into your eye. Uh, it then goes through various you know, layers of processing, V1, V2, V4, IT. Each of those layers of neurons actually has fewer and fewer neurons in it as you go up the visual hierarchy. And that means basically by definition that you're compressing the information from the lowest level to the highest level. So there's some kind of compression operation that's happening as you go through the visual system. And you can think of the as the highest level semantic pointer as being the most compressed vector at the top of that visual representation. So, you know, if you're uh, trying to remember what you just saw, remembering that compressed representation is going to be more efficient than trying to remember the original, you know, uncompressed image. And you can, so you can think of that as like this semantic pointer. So it's semantic in the sense that, you know, if you show similar images, you'll get a similar compressed representation. Um, and it's a pointer in the sense that it's compressed. So it's not all of the data, but it's just some small version, like kind of like a pointer in computer science that you can, you know, put into your memory. You could pass it to language systems. You can do all kinds of things with it more efficiently than taking the full thing it's encoding and passing that all around. Um, so this combination of incorporating semantics and uh, doing this kind of compression for efficiency reasons is what these uh, vector representations are like. And they generalize across, you know, not only vision, but for motor control, for doing cognitive operations, for doing structured working memory and so on. Um, and so yeah, we basically can take any kind of uh, continuously or discreetly structured representation, right? So language or maps or visual systems or, or sort of visual inputs or auditory inputs, et cetera, and build these kinds of representations and then pass them around through the model in order to do the kinds of computation that we want. Um, so the, the sort of uh, system that we're passing this through, um, we can think of from two different perspectives. One is the anatomical perspective. So this is kind of these are the parts of the brain that are in the model. And so a lot of these should look kind of familiar. The one comment I will make is that, you know, the thalamus and the basal ganglia, which is in the orange dot uh, dashed box, are subcortical. Um, so they're sort of inside and everything else is kind of on the cortical surface. So you can th see things like, you know, a vision system in red. Uh, you can see sort of executive systems and memory systems in green. You, and you can see motor systems in purple. And different parts of that, those systems have, you know, slightly different functions that they're mostly focused on. And everything in the model is kind of mapped in a way that's consistent with our current understanding about what different parts of the brain are doing. Uh, the other kind of perspective we can take is what I call the functional perspective. Um, and this is more like a box and arrow diagram, right? So this is kind of like how, when I'm trying to perform some specific function, is information moving through the system in order to realize that function? Um, and so you can see that, you know, we have now boxes where we don't have any anatomical labels, but we have functional labels, right? So the red stuff is doing visual compression through a hierarchy of some kind. 
Uh, the orange part is doing something like action selection and information flow control, right? So that's something that piece of Angli is important for. The green boxes um, at the top there are doing working memory and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so as we uh, sort of scale this model up, we can either be adding boxes or we can be making the things inside those boxes more complicated. Uh, and either one of those things is going to mean that our model is getting more and more complicated, but it also should be getting at the same time more functional, right? So we always want to have complexity and function tightly coupled. Um, and I think this often comes apart in some other large scale uh, brain models <clears throat> in ways that it shouldn't. And so here we want to be really clear that function, there's always a functional perspective on the kind of models that we're building. All right. So at all of that kind of background, I haven't really told you still how the model works for a simple example. So the example we're going to look at is just remembering digits. So if I just tell the model a bunch of digits, what does it exactly do? So let's say we show the number two as an image. Uh, this gets compressed through this visual hierarchy into, as I mentioned, a lower dimensional uh, semantic pointer. Uh, that semantic pointer, uh, because it's the number two has shown up and this model knows that it's doing a working memory task, will then be routed through the action selection system. So the action selection system is sitting there saying, oh, okay, I'm waiting for numbers to show up. A number showed up. I'm going to now turn those white boxes. You can think of those as gates. Like Turn some of those gates on so that compressed representation can flow into my working memory. Once it flows up to the working memory, the memory will sit there and basically uh, you know, have that same compressed representation and uh, just store it as long as it can. And if you leave it there too long, it will fade away. And you know, we've done all kinds of comparisons between our working memory model and human working memory, and we show that they match very well. Um, but you know, what, what we're thinking about right now is just, okay, we're trying to store that representation as long as possible. And if other digits come in, they'll be put into that working memory as well. And you can show as many digits as you want, and it will try to do its best job possible of remembering all of them, um, just like people do. So once we show a question mark, um, now this is something that it knows it's, is an indicator that it has to respond. It has to spit out the list of numbers that it has re remembered so far. So the action selection system is the thing that will recognize that and then take the information that was in working memory and now transmit it towards the motor output uh, system. And so this will now go through, you know, some more uh, sort of connections between the areas, get to the motor system and be converted into a bunch of points. So, you know, it was a two. So now there's going to be a bunch of points that are like the handwriting of spawn for a two. Uh, that is basically a low dimensional representation of the uh, trajectory that we're trying to get the system to go through. And it will be turned into a higher dimensional representation of the muscles that need to be contracted on the arm in order for that trajectory to be realized. And so this is kind of like a decompression operation. Uh, and out will come at you. So that's the sort of, you know, intuitive perspective. We can also take a more sort of detailed mathematical view on this. Um, just worrying a little bit about the time. I might go a, a few minutes past uh, 1.30, um, but we did start a little bit late too. So hopefully you won't, it won't cut too much into our discussion. Um, but yeah, just to do this fairly quickly, you know, we start with an image, which is about 784 dimensions. Um, so that's, you know, the number of pixels that you've got in your image. That has been compressed through our compression operation down to a 50-dimensional representation. So this is a deep sort of compressed uh, semantic pointer. We can then map our perceptual representation into a conceptual one. So, you know, Spawn really knows that two comes after one and it's before three, and it has all these like conceptual relations that it knows about numbers. Um, and so we then map from that perceptual space into this conceptual space, which is a, a non-sparse to a sparse representation. 
We can then encode that into memory so it remembers that there's a two. Um, and the way we do this is, and it remembers what order the digits were shown in as well. Um, and so what Spawn does is basically generate a, a slot for a, a particular position on the fly. So if it's never seen anything, then it generates position one. We'll bind the two to that. Um, if more things come in, like a six and whatever, it will you know, generate a slot, bind it, generate a slot, bind it, generate a slot. Like just do that forever, basically, and keep loading that into the memory. Um, once, you know, and then you can put some delay or whatever you want in there. Once the system has decided that it needs to now write that uh, list of digits out, you basically start redo sort of doing the opposite. So you're compressing a bunch of stuff to generate this memory. And now you want to read things out. So you need to do a decompression where you're like, okay, what was in position one? Right. That should be the number two. That is then mapped from this high dimensional conceptual space down to a motor control space where it's now two dimensions over time. So it's like a path. Um, that two dimensional representation is then projected to a six dimensional muscle space. And, you know, that's the thing that's going to drive the muscles and actually get the motor system to write out its answer. All right. So that's kind of a sort of more mathematical view where, of course, I'm still talking about all of these as being essentially vector representations, but we would use the NEF to implement all the operators. So, you know, there's circular convolution and addition and all the compressions and everything. And we can use the NEF methods for embedding all of those kind of high-level descriptions into spiking neural networks. All right, so to sort of return to Spawn 2.0 a little bit, um, you know, it's got some nice improvements. So it now recognizes characters at the same accuracy as people. It's got better handwriting. Absolutely everything inside the model is spiking. There was a little piece of the motor system that wasn't in the original Spawn. The memory recall uh, more accurately matches human memory recall across lists of arbitrary lengths. Um, and... Um, yeah, and it can do all kinds of fun memory tasks. Uh, it matches more Raven's progressive matrices patterns than the original Spawn 1.0 did. Uh, and, you know, it has a much bigger vision system. So this is now a vision system where you're basically seeing images that you can show it on the left and it's classifying those on the right. Uh, and, you know, it does a pretty good job of this. Uh, not as good as a sort of state-of-the-art non-spiking network would, but, you know, very competitive. Uh, and you know, it makes some mistakes, but it, for the most part, it gives you some pretty reasonable answers. Um, and one of the sort of interesting things about this, that is not a damselfly, uh, interesting things about this is, you know, everything here has been implemented in spiking neurons, and we can, you know, compare it very directly to exactly the same behaviors that we record from uh, cortex of behaving animals. And I don't have the slide here, but we can show that it has, you know, very similar tuning curves, et cetera, et cetera. Um, on the motor side, uh, we've added adaptation to the motor control system. Um, so this video here is showing the, the adaptive controller that is inside Spawn running on neuromorphic hardware controlling a robot arm. Um, so, you know, again, sort of just showing that you can take these models and do more commercial applications with them. Uh, here, it's basically, we've given it a weight that it's never encountered before, and it's learning how to use that weight to reach to this target that it's seeing. Um, and you can see after a couple of reaches, it gets much better. And then basically it now knows how to move through the entire space given this new dynamics that it had never experienced before, which is kind of a, an unknown tool in this case in order to, in order to do the reaching. Uh, actually that, what I just described happens a little bit. Oh no, sorry. This is just showing it after it's trained for 30 minutes and then it just reaches immediately to the right case, the right spot. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to show was um, what I call mental gymnastics. Uh, so just to give you a sense of what I mean by this, um, I like to do a little audience participation. 
So uh, follow the following instructions and let me know what you get at the end. So imagine a capital V and then imagine a capital B and rotate the capital B 90 degrees counterclockwise. Uh, put it on top of the V, erase the back of the B. What is the shape that you have? <laughs> yes, I saw, saw, saw some fingers going in the shape of hearts. So hearts or ice cream cones are the two answers that you get. And what you're really doing there, right, you're basically just getting a bunch of verbal input from me. You're generating internal representations. You're manipulating the internal representations and you know going through several steps before you generate an output. Um, and so what we're doing here with our instruction following is something kind of similar, but obviously some more simplified. So uh, the instructions that we can show to spawn basically are of the form, uh, you know, if such and such happens on your input side, do this thing. And doing this thing could be like do an entire task or it could be uh, classify something in some particular way. So you, I could say, you know, if you see the number two, then or if you no, sorry, I could say if you see a police car, write out the number two or if you see a police car, write out the number eight or whatever. You can just make up arbitrary, you know, mappings. Um, you can then uh, take results from any one of the previous steps and use them in a subsequent step. Um, if you show spawn the M, it knows that it's going to be doing this general instruction following. Uh, you can also give it a series of instructions and then just tell it to follow one of them. So I could say, you know, just follow instruction number two that I gave you and it can do that. Or you can say, move to the next subtask. So move to the next instruction after the one that I gave you. Um, so just to give some sort of simple examples of that. Uh, so what we're doing here is question answering. And question answering means I give you a series of digits and then I ask you questions. So I might say, 472, what was in position number two? And you would say seven, right? Or I could say, where was the two? And you'd say it was in the third position, right? So just answering questions about a, a list of digits. Um, so here we're basically saying, okay, do this question answering task. We're showing it four digits and we're asking what's in position three. And so it writes out a six. So now we're saying, okay, with the same list, what is in uh, the two? Or sorry, where where is the two? And it said it's in the first spot. And then we're saying what is in position two, and it's saying the seven. Right. So the thing that's different about this from the original model is that we just show the question once, and then we can give it a bunch of, or sorry, the input once, and then we can ask it a bunch of different questions and keep switching things around. Right. So we can basically change the question uh, without having it uh, be uh, having to remind it what the original uh, list of digits was. So. In some ways, it's not super impressive, but you know this is sort of an improvement over what the original spawn model would do. Um, so this is a little bit more interesting. Here, we're basically just getting it to do a bunch of different tasks all in a row uh, after giving it one set of instructions. Um, so here, we're starting with a list. We're just saying, remember this list. Um, and then we're saying, increment all of the values in that list by three. Right. So now it's actually doing this. Uh, and then writing out the answer. And now we're going to ask it to do question answering on the lists that it has uh, generated. Um, so we're going to say, what's it in position two? And now it writes out a five. Right. So this is a lot more like the VB thing. We did show you, we got Spawn to tell us the intermediate representations to write them out. It doesn't have to. Right. So um, we just often do that so people are convinced that it's actually got that information inside of it. Uh, and then the last task. Um, which I think is the most sophisticated one. Um, this is going to combine a bunch of different tasks. It's going to use information from previous tasks to do subsequent ones and so on. So I'll just walk you through it. Um, so this is basically 
like the Raven's progressive matrix is saying, okay, what's the pattern in these inputs I'm showing as you go from a one to a three, a two to a four. And it basically is like, oh, that's incrementing by two. And then it's getting it to do question answering, say what's in position two of this list. And it wrote out a seven. And then it's saying, apply the pattern that you got in number one to this list and apply the pattern means add, right? So now it's writing out six, nine, and four, which is adding two to all of those numbers. And now it's having it apply the pattern to the position that you asked it about previously. <laughs> so you asked it about position two and uh, it had found a pattern equal to two. So it's adding two and two and getting four. All right, so that's a lot going on very quickly. So I will rerun this video. Only 30 seconds long. Right, so we're saying, okay, you have a one followed by a three and two followed by a four. What is the pattern? And it infers the pattern is two. And then we're saying, okay, do question answering on this list. What's in position two? And it says seven. And then we're basically saying, add two, the pattern that you found in number one, to this list. And so it's writing out six, nine, and four. And then we're saying, okay, add the position we asked you about and the pattern that you found in steps one and two and write out a four. Okay. So, uh, right. So, you know, it's fairly complicated question answering or pattern, or sorry, uh, fairly complicated instruction following. Um, and, you know, it's able to do all a huge variety of combinations of things that you might possibly do. And, and we call that one task because we basically think, you know, it's, it's a task where we've got a sort of simple vocabulary set of instructions and things that you can, you know, combine in all kinds of interesting ways to see how the system does. So that's the last example that I wanted to show. Um, I'll just conclude by saying that we think it's very important to take this kind of functional perspective on building models uh, that are neurologically plausible to help us better understand how brains work. Um, that is, we want to couple synthetic and analytic biology. Uh, we think that the techniques that we've introduced here, things like the SPA, the NEF, and Ningo, um, help address these issues, but there's still a very, very long way to go. Obviously, that the, mo the model we've built here is much, much simpler than real brains, and we can definitely talk about that in all kinds of great detail later on. Uh, but, you know, I still think that it is the world's largest functional brain model, so it seems to be getting us to places where uh, we haven't been before from uh, sort of, you know, understanding how biological cognition works. And I'll stop with that and uh, be happy to take any questions. Thank you so much. Uh, this was wonderful. This was a lot to digest. I'm sorry, yeah, it's a bit of a like, fire hose, still you know. Half an hour. No, it was, it was, it was awesome. It was really, really great. I'm sure that we get back into some of the slides, like in, in doing the questions and we have a lot of them already like piled up here. Thank you so, so much. I, like I had no idea that, yeah, just like, I guess how much is possible. It's, it's been pretty like mind boggling. Uh, we have, uh, the North first with a question. So if you want to unmute, go for it. Uh, if you can't, I'm happy to read out your question, but this was really, really wonderful. Thank you. My pleasure. Um, hi. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, how does this compare to the model by uh, Isikiewicz and Edelman that they published in PNS in 2008? Yeah, um, it's very, very different. So that's an example of a non-functional model, right? So that's a very big model. Um, it's got lots of neurons that are kind of statistically roughly connected, not to do anything in particular, but to kind of approximate what we know about the statistics of connectivity in things like thalamus and cortex and subcortical areas, et cetera. Then they ran the model and they saw oscillations, which is cool, but, you know, in any big, complicated, chaotic, dynamical system, you'll tend to see that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, it was really big, but it didn't have any function at all, right? It could literally do nothing. So I, th I, I kind of put that in the category with, you know, the kinds of brain models where you have a lot of complexity, but you have no function. And I, I think that's an issue. 
And I would also put uh, a lot of the um, Blue Brain Project and Human Brain Project work into that same bucket where they've built. So, you know, in Isakevich, they only have a couple of uh, equations per neuron. And so they had 100 million neurons or something, 100 billion. I don't remember. It's some big number. And then um, in the Blue Brain Project, they're doing something similar in the sense that they're doing, you know, replicating statistical activity from a particular part of the brain. Um, but each of their neurons is very complicated, right? They have like 16 to 20 sort of equations per cell. Uh, and they model all kinds of additional nonlinearities that you don't get in the Isakevich model. Um, but similarly, it's non-functional, right? And I think that's a problem, right? So they, they try to compare what they do to some of the data that they collected from that brain area, but they don't show how it's, you know, doing some information processing of some particular kind. Thanks. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, next one up here, I have Marcus. Uh, yes, uh, ju just two questions. One is, um, are you including delays between brain regions? Um, sort of, right? So uh, in our um, uh, synapses, right, we've got uh, neuro uh, basically synaptic filters with different kinds of time constants. And the way you change those time constants uh, look a lot like a delay. So we haven't put in an absolute delay, um, but we have the dynamics that you see and the connectivity between the neurons incorporated into the model. Okay. Um, and you can, like, Mango lets you easily add in delays. Uh, so you can definitely do that, and it doesn't really have big consequences yeah. for what we're doing. Okay. And the second question was, uh, would this kind of model also run on Spinnaker? Yeah, uh, we worked actually closely with the Spinnaker group. Uh, they had a PhD student a few years back who was taking big parts of Spawn and getting it to run on Spinnaker. And he succeeded in getting chunks, but not the whole thing. Uh, in my group, we've actually built like the associative memory that we use inside Spawn. We put that on Spinnaker and we have some papers on that. Um, um, so yeah, definitely. Uh, and so, on so, the, so, so you could have a, a robot with a small, you know, Spinnaker system implanted. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and well, so one of the things I had to answer in preparation for this presentation was what's the thing that you would like to happen in your field to make things advance? And my answer was, I want hardware that will run this in real time. That's what I want, right? Yes, yes, yes. So, okay. Yeah. Okay, thanks. I'll remove the uh, screen sharing just so we can look at each other uh, uh, until we may actually have to get back in, in, into that. I hope that's okay. Next one up, we have Randall, I think, for the cacophony of questions. So you go for it. Yes, first of all, I just want to say thank you very much for a fantastic talk on a, a fabulous system. Um, and I don't want to mention all questions right away because that would be unfair to other people who also have questions, but I want to combine a few of mine, um, because I think you did, you did explain where the impetus came from to make spawn and also spawn 2.0. Uh, but just to be really clear, I, I love to understand how much this is on the side of neuroscience versus AI, because you briefly mentioned being able to, to you know, obtain new insights that would be useful for AI out of it and what sort of things might actually be new insights that would be really useful to AI. It, that's always interesting. And so, but the first thing that came to mind in this kind of looking at where this falls exactly in between neuroscience and AI is, of course, that because it's cognitive sciences, does this replicate psychometrics? Can you actually demonstrate why yeah. a cognitive task performs in a certain way when you're using these spiking networks? And is that the reason to use spiking neurons in the representation in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> um, so these are all the slides I left out, right? Um, so yeah, you, you, you can definitely... Um, so yeah, there's a lot of subtlety here. So whether it needs to be spiking neurons or not, maybe we can put aside. I think what it needs to be is a dynamical system, right? So you could have a dynamical... You can basically turn all the spikes and spawn off and it will act very similarly. Um, it won't have 
you, you'll be missing a bunch of metrics that neuroscientists care about, right? Like correlations between spikes and all kinds of stuff like that. But um, it will still perform a lot of the cognitive tasks and it will still do it in the time frame that people do. And I think that's the kind of thing that you really want to be capturing when you're trying to match a lot of the cognitive uh, psychometric data, right? So timing data, very common thing that you measure, accuracy data, very common thing. And th- those are all things that come out of this bond model. So um, yeah, you know, it, it does the memory. It, when it does counting tasks, it has a linear increase with it you know, uh, increase in the variance as the number of counts goes up. And I guess all, there's just a whole ton of stuff there where we, we've gone through uh, lots of examples of this model is replicating the um, data at the psychological level. We also do that at the neural level, right? So we have lots of cases where we're looking at the spiking dynamics that have been recorded from rodents and monkeys. Typically, you don't have that data from humans so much. Um, but again, we can show that, yeah, we've got the same kind of dynamics that you find at the low level of neurons as well. And this is really, again, part of having an architecture that spans between uh, cognition and neuroscience is that you should be able to address all the varieties of data. Uh, we've done fMRI comparisons and on and on and on. Right? And I really think that's the, the point of a platform like this. And I hope that more people do more of that kind of comparison because I think that's really what makes convinces you that you've got something that works. Yeah. Uh, so it's really a great system for hypothesis testing then for neuroscientists. 100%. That's yeah. what we think it is. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, to the question of AI versus... Uh, neuroscience, like I'm really on the fence on this in the sense that I I like both. I do both. I think both are important. I think they're mutually informative. Um, Examples, uh, you know, I think the kind of decision-making system that we have embedded in Spawn is better than the one that people typically use in uh, lots of neural systems. So I I would say, you know, uh, and we're, you know, in the company that I mentioned, we're building drone controllers and all kinds of stuff that are using like the adaptive motor control that we developed for Spawn and uh, using, uh, you know, special techniques for doing spiking cameras, which let you process low light stuff better. And like basically solving a bunch of engineering problems, um, because we have all this familiarity with how brains work, right? So there's some really clear cases of that. Um, my favorite examples are actually not in this version of Spawn. They'll be in the next one for cases where we were looking at how does the brain solve a problem? Um, and saying, hey, we should be solving a problem, that, that problem this way with our neural networks. And so my favorite example is this network we've published on recently called the Legendre Memory Unit. Um, and that's the machine learning name. But what really happened is we were writing a paper on neural representation of time in the hippocampus. And we figured out a way of optimally representing time. Uh, and when we implemented that dynamical system in spiking neurons, we get the responses of what are called time cells that you see in the hippocampus. Um, and so we're like, hey, that's pretty cool. And it's optimal, which is great. Hey, it's optimal. I wonder how it does on time series benchmarks. And it blows all the benchmarks away. So now we have a bunch of papers which are like, look, here's all of, here are standard benchmarks for, you know, large language models. We, the, this LMU is way more efficient than transformers, um, speech processing, uh, natural language processing, radio frequency analysis, heartbeat detection. Like the list just goes on and on and on because it's provably optimal for doing time series compression. So that's a case where we found, we found this core of this algorithm by looking at what the brain is doing for representing time. And mm-hmm. now it's like very, you know, the company is very excited building hardware to do all, like, you know, there's all kinds of great commercial applications. Um, that's, but that's, unfortunately, awesome. that's not in spawn yeah. yet. <laughs> Howard, Howard Eichenbaum would have been very happy. Yeah. 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 For sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah. So time cells are also everywhere in the brain, which is great. And so we're, we're also doing a bunch of modeling with that same LMU network um, in, you know, understanding temporal reasoning in humans. Um, and, and there's like all this prospective and retrospective timing data, and it matches that better than past models have. Anyways, so yeah, it's one of these things which just seems to be, you know, very uh, um, 
good for explaining all kinds of data, both on the neuroscience side and then building state-of-the-art models on the AI side. Okay, I'm reading out uh, like Mac Lin's questions. He has two of them. Maybe I'll shoot both uh, of them at you and then you can uh, kind of, uh, yeah, arbitrage between them. First, uh, that was quite some time ago at 11, uh, 16. You mentioned the quality of the handwriting. What's limiting it? Needing more connections, more training time or limitations of the arm and muscle setup by motor ability. Like, is there anything in particular that's limiting it? And then a little later, you are if you're using a specific Viking neuron model or a variety of different ones as a bit studying how the spawn uh, model accuracy relevant metrics have been affected by using different types of spiking neurons. Yeah, yeah, great question. So, um, right. So on the side of the motor or on the handwriting, um, so yeah, I didn't spend any time on that slide, but basically those two comparisons, if you look at the first version of the model, the lines are a lot more wiggly, they're far less smooth than the new version of the model. Uh, why? Um, we basically have a better dynamical system implementation than we did in the original model, which uh, is larger. So you have more neurons, which lets you suppress noise better, but it's also just a more robust uh, model for dealing with the yeah, variability and what happens between when you plot your path and it actually gets through a bunch of muscles and into a robotic arm. Um, so yeah, I think your, your intuitions about how you solve that you get rid of the noise and you can do that multiple ways, adding more neurons, but also improving the quality of the, or the sort of type of dynamics that you're implementing. For the question of what neurons we're using, so yeah, in the spawn model, uh, as I was presenting it, those are all lift neurons. So, you know, very simple spiking neuron model. But we have uh, on bar BioArchive, I can send you a paper where we basically show that you can take some of the neurons out of spawn, the simple lift neurons, and we put neurons that are as complicated as the ones they use in the Blue Brain project with a clear target here, uh, saying, look, we can, we can get rid of those simple models and we can put really complicated models in. And we did it for part of the working memory, uh, system. But why would you do that unless you had a question to ask? And so we're like, okay, here's a question we can ask with these more complicated neurons. What happens if I apply TTX to my cognitive model? Right. And this is an experiment you can never do ethically. Um, but we can do it on our model. And so now we can, you know, apply TTX to the system while it's doing a counting task or whatever. And you can see how it fails. And so now we have a prediction that I don't think anyone, <laughs> hopefully no one will ever test, uh, about what would happen if you had this, you know, sodium channel blocker implemented during a counting task or other kinds of cognitive tasks. So the reason we did that was basically just to demonstrate proof of principle that we can take parts of this model and now you have to pay a lot of extra computational cost for running this working memory component uh, than you did before. But you are able to ask questions you couldn't have asked otherwise. Um, but, uh, you know, everything else still works, right? It's not like for some reason, you know, you have to have a lift neuron or spawn doesn't work. It's not like that at all. Uh, and in fact, we published a, a recent paper which kind of says, you know, take any weird, crazy, complicated single neuron model that you want. This is how you build functional networks with it. And it's a much more involved process than with lift neurons. Um, but, you know, we do a comparison to lift neurons and other and sort of progressively increase the complexity of the neuron model and show that this new technique we've devised will let you still build these functional models, uh, even though you're using much more sophisticated biological systems, but the computational costs go way up. So, yeah, I, I think that's kind of the, the relevant answer to your question is you can put whatever level of complexity you want in here. Um, but you pay a cost, but you can sometimes answer new questions with that as well, which is good. Wow. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, Andrews, you're next. Yeah. yeah. 
so I have two questions, uh, slightly different from each other. The first one was actually about the computational cost for the whole simulation and the, perhaps even more important per neurons. And you kind of already gave the answer that lift neurons are relatively simple. And then there is an interesting question, what numerical resolution actually is good enough. The second question, I think, is a bit more fundamental. Here, the tasks seem to be predefined. Now, what would it be, take to actually make uh, Spawn learn tasks online? So you could actually try to teach the, the new tricks. Yeah, so so the version of Spawn actually does two learning tasks, um, which, you know, I couldn't compress everything into the talk. So uh, one of them is uh, reinforcement learning bandit tasks. So this is a task that they run in rodents all the time, where you basically put a rodent in a maze and then... It can turn left or right, and they will. There's some probability of reward left and right, and it you know goes through the maze several times to figure out what's the best way to turn. So we run that same model, or sorry, that same task on Spawn, um, and so it can learn that on the fly, and you can change the probabilities, and it will learn new stuff, right? So it's a very simple kind of learning, but it does incorporate that. Uh, and then the the motor control system actually does have adaptation, so you can change the dynamics of the uh, system that is manipulating, and it can adapt to that those dynamics on the fly. Um, and so we have a couple of these sort of like simple examples of learning on the fly, but it's an outstanding question, I would say. Like if we want to just teach Spawn an entirely new task, uh, how do we do that? Um, one thing I will note is that adding new tasks isn't necessarily hard, right? Uh, because what we have inside the model, I didn't really spend time on this, but uh, you know, those labels on the boxes for functions are very general functions, right? They're things like encode your visual information, remember stuff, uh, recognize patterns, and you know whatever. Do this kind of processing, control your motor system. And so when we added in new tasks, like there were, there was a point where we you know only had seven tasks in the original one, and somebody's like, oh, I bet your model can't do this, and we're like, okay. And then we had to add in like two hundred neurons, and now it could do that new this new cognitive task because all it's doing is redeploying this sort of information processing capabilities that it already has inside. Um, so I think it's very doable to get it to learn new tasks on the fly, but it's, yeah, it, there are challenges and we haven't done that yet. Um, one comment I was going to make about the computational cost, just to put it in sort of concrete uh, uh, terms, we can run the spawn model on a recent GPU about 20 times slower than real time, right? So that's pretty good. Uh, but it's also a tiny model. It's only six six point three million neurons, right? So if we wanted this to be eighty billion neurons, <laughs> right? Uh, so yeah, it is computationally pretty intense. But lift neurons are, are relatively cheap, and they are also very very nice to run on a GPU. Yeah. I haven't checked what the latest is running running Hodgkin and Huxley on a GPU, but it, it sounds like it's a headache. Yeah, it's way worse because yeah, and your time steps have to get a lot smaller if you want to do the spikes. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Exactly. Wonderful. Thanks, Anders. We have another question from Robin Hansen. Hi. Uh, nice to, great to hear your talk. I'm probably not going to word this exactly right, but I'm especially interested, as others here are, in the concept of brain emulation, sort of making a working copy of a brain by just copying the structure without understanding it. You seem to be suggesting that you can understand many key behaviors of the brain using pretty simple neuron models. If if that were generally true, then it would seem like for the purpose of brain emulation, you wouldn't need to actually know that much detail about most neurons because that detail doesn't matter. You're getting the same behavior 
regardless of which versions you put in. So is that misleading or is that roughly where your results are suggesting? Um, yeah, I think that's a little misleading. And, and you know, th the reason is that like if we change the neurons in our model, we have to recompute the weights, right? So you can't kind of do a simple, like, so if you take the, the connectivity from a really complicated, you know, real biological brain, and you're like, okay, that's the connectivity we need. So let's put that into our really simple neurons. It won't likely work, right? It's also very difficult to measure the weights, which you need in order to do function. And then I think this is one of going to be one of the big challenges for doing things like brain, brain emulation, but you know, you already know this, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you can't really just swap out complex neuron for simple neuron because you need to restructure the weights, basically, when you start changing your uh, dynamics of your neurons and all this kinds of stuff. So unfortunately, I think, yeah, it is a challenge. So when we, you know, put more complicated neurons in, we basically have some methods for doing an optimization that's going to solve for weights that are going to compute the same function over a population of neurons as the original neurons did, but it's not going to be with the same weights. Okay, but then modulo the redoing weight model transformation, yeah. that substitution would seem to roughly work. That is, we don't need to yeah. know much more about the neuron other than how to remap the, the weights in order to get roughly the same behavior. Yeah, I think sort of, yeah, yeah. That's, as a, long that's as a pretty, in there, I mean, that's a remarkably yeah. strong claim from, from yeah, my yeah, point of yeah. view. That means like, well, hey, yeah. that, that's, that means there's a lot less you have to do than you might have otherwise had to do. So, but yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, but the roughly is important there. Like you're going to lose functionality. You're going to lose, you know, certain aspects of the way the original system works when you do these simplifications, but it might not be anything you care about. Right. So, you know, we, we've got lots and lots of examples of, you know, so people say, Hey, these neurons have these tuning curves. And we're like, ah, here's a lift neuron model that has those same tuning curves. And so if you really think the tuning curves are the things that's capturing all the computation, et cetera, then you're fine, right? Because you, you reproduce it. Yeah. But if you're wrong about that, it might be an issue. But anyways, yeah, I would, I would, I would support that strong claim probably more than most. I will say that. Uh, wonderful. We had one more here from Sikar, who just dropped off, but he was asking, how does this work related to the work by Jeff Hawkins, the, the thousand brains? A very high level question. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think it's very different in the following sense. So, uh, you know, Hawkins, um, uh, um, sorry, the guy's name is escaping me, like the hidden Markov model guy whose name is escaping me, who founded Nuance and all that kind of stuff, Pertwal, uh, right? They both have sort of perspectives of cortex as being um, like a, you know, component, which is repeated over and over and over and over again. Um, I think that is problematic, right? And I think that when you look at the models that we've built, um, we don't have a component that's repeated over and over and over again. There definitely is some degree of sort of pseudo-crystalline structure kind of in parts of the model, but in general, it, you know, it's not a replicable single element that just the same thing happens everywhere. Um, and so I would say that that's kind of the big difference between the kinds of models that we're building, the kinds of models that uh, they have built, and also that are kind of assumed by the Blue Brain Project, right? And of course, that's a, an assumption you would love to make, because if you then discover the one neural module and you just repeat it over and over, that's great. But if you look at actual biological brains, you know, if you look at motor cortex and you look at visual cortex, the, you know, laminar thicknesses are totally different. The neural connectivity patterns are totally different. There's just a lot of differences that really don't look a lot like uh, a repeated structure. And all of this stuff comes back to Mount Castle and looking at rat barrel cortex, which if you look at looks a very repeated structure, but that's not all of cortex. So I would just, yeah, I, I think that's a, probably a point of disagreement um, between me and the, the way that those, some of those other approaches are working. 
Thank you. I know we're at time, but could I squeeze in one more question, which is if this group is excited about what you're doing, which I, I at this point, I'm like, I think it's pretty obvious that it is. Uh, what can people do very like practically to help you work forward? This is like a shameless plug moment, either if you're hiring, if you're like fundraising for a specific project, whatever it may be, drop it here so people can like have a good action item during this conversation. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm always fundraising. I, I will have to say, one thing that I found surprising recent in my recent conversations is a lot of the funders I'm talking to don't want to fund a already existing successful approach to biological modeling. And I find this really astounding. So, you know, we built the world's largest functional brain model and we've showed all of these you know, advances from the first version to the second version. We've got a bunch of cool stuff for the third version. Nobody wants to fund that. They want to fund something where it's completely new and it's an approach that no one's ever taken before. And I'm like, well... I understand the value in that to an extent, but also like let's push this already proven method as far as we can. So yeah, on the funding side, I would definitely be uh, you know happy to talk to anyone who thinks that there are places where the lab could go uh, and uh, yeah, find find support for continue, you know, building Spawn 3.0, which is something that we really want to do. Um, so there was my shameless, shameless blood, I guess. So thanks for that. Love it. So <laughs> you know who you are, people. Uh, thank you so, so much. You, uh, yeah, this was really mind-boggling. Thanks a ton. Um, we were really delighted to have you on. Thank you so, so much. I hope it wasn't the last time. Thanks everyone for joining. Uh, I hope to see you at the next one. Uh, and have a wonderful rest of the day. This was absolutely spectacular. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Really appreciate it. Take care. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening.